The World Changing Women podcast is brought to you by the 2019 World Changing Women's Summit. Join us January 28th through 30th in Santa Cruz, California to nourish yourself, connect with other women in leadership, and elevate business. For more information and to claim your tickets, visit worldchangingwomensummit.com. That's worldchangingwomensummit.com. Hey there, podcast listeners. You can follow us on Twitter at WCWpod. If you haven't yet, we'd be so grateful if you could help us out by subscribing, rating, or leaving a review of this podcast. Thank you, as always, for listening. You're listening to the World Changing Women's Podcast, where each week we talk to badass female founders who've built game-changing brands that are making the world a better place. I wanted to restore reverence for the female body. We have been so shamed and degraded, but like this is powerful. This experience is what is tied to our ability to create life and it's an extremely deep experience when you think about it. There are some people in this world who, when they identify a problem, they dive right into the deep end to try to fix it. Molly Hayward is one of these people. Molly is the founder and CEO of Cora, which is a certified organic tampon company that provides menstrual products for girls in need around the world for every box of tampons that you buy. You see, the problem is that millions of young girls around the globe miss school or work during their periods because they can't afford menstrual supplies. Over 300 million girls are forced to use rags, plastic, and ash to manage their periods, forcing nearly one in four girls in India alone to drop out of school once she hits puberty. As soon as Molly learned about this problem, she set out to start a social enterprise that would address it, and started Cora. This was a story that we covered in 2015 in Conscious Company magazine. And I was absolutely delighted to most recently see Cora being sold at Target. I sat down with Molly to hear the inside story of how she got Cora off the ground, how she managed to grow a company in such a taboo product area, and what advice for other entrepreneurs that she's learned along the way. I'm your host, Megan French Dunbar, co founder and CEO of Conscious Company Media. Welcome to World Changing Women. Let's start at the beginning with your origin story. How did the idea for Cora emerge? Yeah, so the idea for Cora for me was kind of something that happened very quickly. So I was coming out of the first kind of couple of experiences and years that I had had in businesses, and most of them were early stage startups that had a really strong social mission. And I was super inspired by that, uh, particularly because I, through college, I had studied women's rights, women's economic development in developing countries, was super passionate about all of the different needs out there and how we could be involved to change the world. And I was really at a crossroads. I was coming out of the first company that I had actually co-founded and you know, was definitely a little bit battered and bruised from that experience as you know, any entrepreneur can understand. And I was really just doing some soul searching and trying to figure out what my next project might be, what I, where I wanted to move into. And the thing that I knew was that I wanted to do something that 
was truly meaningful, that I had a ton of passion for, and that could have a really big impact on the world in a positive way. And so I was really just, again, like doing a lot of reading, doing a lot of thinking and trying to feel into that. And a friend called me up out of the blue and was like, hey, I am going on this philanthropic trip with this organization. I know that you kind of have some time on your hands right now. Like, do you want to go? They have like one seat left on the plane. And, you know, without skipping a beat, I was like, yes. And so I went and basically, you know, saw all of this amazing investment being made into girls' education and women's health. And it was wonderful to be there. And I got to know a lot of the girls and the women in the community. And, and where one, was this specifically? Oh, sorry. This was in Kenya. Okay. And, you know, so I got to know the, these, many of the students, many of them were, you know, half of them were girls. And I was walking through the village one day and one sort of early afternoon. And I saw one of the girls that I had gotten to know. Her name is Purity. And she was standing in the doorway of her home, you know, so I just walked over and I said, you know, hey, how, how are you? And why aren't you at school today? And she sort of looked down at her feet and her voice lowered. And she said, well, I have my menstrual period. And when I have my menstrual period, I just stay home. And I was sort of floored and I don't even remember what I said, but I sort of walked away from it and was just stunned. And when I started to kind of talk to other people in the community and within the organization that was there in the community working on all these projects, I came to find out that the majority of girls would just stay home from school during their periods because they couldn't afford menstrual pads or any other type of period care that was sustainable for them. And so most were using rags or sand or mud or ash to at least manage it as best they could, but they wouldn't go to school with that because they were too worried that they would leak through their dresses and have you know, a blood stain, which would be a horrible humiliation to them. And so, I mean, my wheels just started turning at that point. And it was really then that I started to think about my own experience of my period as a relatively privileged Western woman, you know, it wasn't a function of, I don't have this and therefore I'm going to put my life on hold because I can't leave my house. And really it was that moment of, of seeing the brokenness of this experience on both sides, at both kind of extremes of the economic spectrum, where I realized that there was this opportunity to potentially connect women through this experience to create one that really came back, I think, to reverence for the female body. And so as I kind of began to research the industry here in the U.S., I you know, quickly learned that you know, the majority of conventional products were made from synthetics or a combination of conventional cotton and synthetics. And conventional cotton is one of the dirtiest crops in the world, heavily, heavily sprayed with pesticides and then other chemicals during processing. And you know, shitty packaging and like non-existent design, at least by sort of modern standards. And there was no sort of connection by which brands here were speaking, I felt, to what I sort of termed like the modern woman, the woman who is intelligent and, and thoughtful and considers what she's using in terms of her personal care, what's good for her body, what brands really align with her values on all of these different levels. And just realized there was an opportunity to 
offer women a brand here that did align with those values of health and design and convenience and environmental sustainability and social impact. And so that was really where the idea for Cora was born. And at that time, you know, I think Tom's shoes was kind of exploding. And I thought, well, there could probably be no greater equivalency or like an easier to understand equivalency than for every month's supply of you know, tampons or pads that I sell to a woman here in the US, I will provide a month's supply of pads to a girl in need. And so that was really the origin of, of the model that Cora has, you know, has continued with and, you know, has been able to, to scale with. And, and just so I can understand the timing on this, how old were you when this was happening? I think I was 25 when I went to Kenya. Um, <laughs> and, and you'd yeah. already launched a, a business before this, so you're just one of those you know, like, deep underachievers. I had, a, I had a strong drive to like break away, and I never enjoyed like having a boss. I, I mean, I was, I was also very naive, right? Like you're, you're young and you think that you can do anything, and you know, the, the, the origins of Cora are certainly pretty humble and I think reflect the, the age and experience that I, that I had, but I think I was so passionate and so driven and so, you know, I think heartened by the original response from women that I got when I said to them, like, Hey, if I allow you to create a custom box of organic period care and I ship it to you every month, is that something you might pay me for? And they were all like, Oh God, yes. And then when I told them, you know, that I would provide a month's supply of pads to a girl in, in need for every box I shipped to them. It was like a no brainer. And so that like kept me going for a long time before, you know, the business truly started to like formalize and kind of, I think, set itself on the path that, you know, has brought it to what it is today. And, and not to be like a full on infomercial here, but <laughs> just the, the simplicity of the story. I remember you told me this story. I'm, I'm, we're at three years ago now, and in, in the third um, issue yeah. of Conscious Company magazine, and yeah. here, like learning about the pesticide and the issue with tampons in general, and that they're going into the most sensitive areas of your body. That's like knock number one, and then totally. understanding that your purchase is actually helping women in underserved parts of the of the world. I this was, I mean, I, I interview a lot of people, but this was one of those like no brainers where I was like, where do I subscribe? And I have been a loyal Cora subscriber for three years, and I look forward to my little box in the mail. And so, so you've seen the progression. Absolutely, awesome. I have watched your brand evolve, and I'm excited Ugh. to talk about that. Um, yeah, but. Let's let's go back to this kind of origin story. So you're 25 yeah. years old. You come up with this fantastic model of a one for one. Um, I and are you still in Kenya? Do you return to the United States? Like, what, how does this turn from an idea to an actual action? What's the first steps? Yeah, totally. So I came back from Kenya, like just brimming with like the ideas and the excitement. And I'm like, you know, mapping everything out. And this is what the packaging is going to look like. And this is what the website's going to be and all of that really exciting stuff in the early days. And, you know, I basically came back from Kenya, was convinced that I was going to do this come hell or high water and, um, and started by just kind of figuring out all the nuts and bolts. So for the first thing I did was to establish who the giving partner would be, because that was so, you know, that was the whole reason that was like the core reason for me. So 
it actually turned out that our first partner was in India. It just, we found, or I found this amazing organization in Kenya called Akar Innovations. They're a social enterprise that has developed a plant-based biodegradable sanitary pad. They produce these pads in small-scale manufacturing units that are uh, cooperatives that are owned and run by women. So local women in in communities where there's not a lot of job opportunities, particularly for women, they set up these small-scale manufacturing units. They're able to earn a living wage to work and kind of earn together with dignity and sort of upward mobility. So we actually partnered with them or I partnered with them first and foremost. And they, again, they continue to be, you know, one of our primary partners today, but that was like the first step for me, find the right partner, the one that really was addressing this issue of menstrual equality in a holistic way. I knew that I didn't want to do the, you know, God love them, but like the Tom Shoes model where we were like, where I was sending, you know, US or American products to to India. That doesn't that to me is not solving the sort of root issue of accessibility or or economic sustainability. And so really it was wanting to find that partner that was already producing a really amazing product that ticked all of those boxes um, in the countries where they were actually going to be dispatched. So that was the first step. And then of course like sourcing products and you know the first boxes that I was sending out, I was ordering, I think I can say this, I was ordering seventh generation products from a wholesaler and just unpacking them and repacking them to the specifications that the, you know, I think I started literally with 10 women, um, like friends and friends of friends who I said, you know, just tell me how many tampons and pads and what, you know, absorbencies and quantities you want. And that's what I'll pack up and send to you. And so, yeah, I was like, I was speaking on a panel with John Rapogel like a few months ago and I told this story and I said like it was seventh generation products and like we both kind of laughed and and uh you know he was he was he totally got it I don't think they can sue us at this point but uh, (laughs) (laughs) I hope not but um but that's what it was and and so it was really like validating the model and of course like it took more than 10 women to validate the model but in those early days I was like getting you know ordering wholesale I was ordering the the boxes and the packing materials and printing cards like on my you know inkjet inkjet printer and packing them up and shipping them out and over time you know these women were telling their friends and their friends and their friends and it started to grow a little bit about a year later i decided to run a crowdfunding campaign to kind of just raise awareness get a little bit of capital and also to kind of like grow the you know the base of customers which was still you know quite small sort of in the in the hundreds and uh so did that and successfully raised i think $32,000 and sort of expanded the customer base a bit and then from there, you know, things really started to to continue to move forward. And I think this is the moment where I like to really stress the point for anybody who is like in the midst of starting their company or project or venture or is like in a dark place because, you know, again, like I'd been working on this alone. I'd been, you know, pouring any savings that I had. I, you know, took on a bunch of credit card debt. Like I was like really doing whatever it took. I was certainly not in a position at 25 years old where I was like self-funding, no problem. Um, I was really like stitching my life together to be able to make this work. 
And so about a year after the crowdfunding campaign, I, you know, I think probably in part thanks to like the Conscious Company Magazine article and a couple of others was approached by some TV producers who were creating like a Shark Tank-esque show, but it was supposed to be a little bit more like these investors were going to mentor you and you would do projects with them. And over the course of a few weeks, you know, they would kind of take your idea and help you to kind of formalize it a bit more. And then they would decide, you know, to invest in you or not. And so I ended up going on this show and in the end, the investors were like, yes, we want to invest in you and blah, blah, blah. And it was an interesting experience. The show didn't ultimately like really take off or go anywhere. But, and this is like one of those moments that you just can't, like it, it, it you don't see it coming, but one of the investors on that show basically pulled me aside off camera and was like, hey, I'm not really supposed to be talking to you off camera, but like, I think what you're doing is amazing. And I actually have a friend who's working on a really similar concept. And like, I wonder if you guys should like talk to each other and maybe partner instead of like competing. And I was like, great, who is she? And got on, you know, got on the phone with this person and ultimately, you know, that person became my co-founder and, you know, is, is a man, which it doesn't, you know, shouldn't really matter. But of course I was like, wait, what? And, you know, we sort of got on the phone and like immediately were so aligned in terms of our values, in terms of our vision. He was coming at it from the perspective of seeing his wife, who's like a total kick-ass woman, like just struggle to like keep two tampons in her purse and then like finding out that they were made with synthetics and like kind of all the, the pieces that I discovered along the way. And he really just as a truly wonderful and empathetic person was like, well, I have the skills and the background to maybe help to make this better for my wife, Katie, and for our female peers. So let me see what I can do. And when we met, it was like, we had such complementary skill sets and we had complementary progress and we found we got along really well and had this wonderful kind of working relationship. And so we, we sort of merged our two companies and concepts and, and the brand and decided to move forward together. That opened so many doors that I think were not open to me in terms of being a solo founder and you know, actually being able to do things like raise money and work quickly and get certain things, you know, like out the door in a reasonable amount of time. And so when we partnered, it was this moment of like, okay, I know how to create the brand and, and build the story and, and get the customers and create the, the experience. You know how to source products and build out the supply chain. And like together, we were able to just accelerate and actually get to a place where we could walk into a room with an investor and like make a pretty compelling pitch. And that was like the start, I think of again, like getting us on the path to where we are today was going from working alone <laughs> in a room to being on a team. I, I, I love the idea for whatever reason, the, the picture of you like sitting in your living room with like tampon boxes everywhere. Oh my and, like, God, it was like, insanity. When I think back now, it's like, oh God, I wouldn't trade it, but 
at the same time, I had to, like, I must have been on some other level. Yeah, says every <laughs> entrepreneur on yeah. earth. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But I do, like, I think it, I think it's like, that is such a, I really try to encourage people, like, everybody has a different tolerance for risk and for financial ruin or whatever. But it, and, and obviously, I was at a point in my life where I had no responsibilities. I didn't have a mortgage. I didn't have children. Like, I, I really could just, throw everything I had at this, but I also feel like I stuck it out through a lot of moments where like a sane person would have told me this isn't ever going to work and ultimately got to a place where it did work. And I, I met the people that I needed to meet and was kind of put into the rooms that I needed to be in to actually move it forward. So I think more than anything, you know, it wasn't like skills or smarts or like know-how. It was more just like bullheaded persistence. <laughs> so I'm curious around the financial component of this. So it sounds like yeah. this, the first year was really just bootstrapping. The second year you have this crowdfunding campaign. Year three, you're being introduced to investors. I'm just really interested in how did you finance this from the beginning yeah. and then to date? Um, like how have you built the company? Yeah. So, you know, as soon as Morgan and I started working together, we knew we needed to raise capital. Like you couldn't buy a container load of, you know, you had to buy the minimum order for, you know, organic tampons from a manufacturer was like a container load. So you're talking like $50,000 at least. And so we knew that, that it was like, that we had to have a base of capital to work from. We wanted to really start to build out what we wanted to ultimately build. And so we started, we decided to raise a seed round. We, you know, of course, you know, went to our networks first and our initial seed round was, our, our, our seed round was ended up, I think being 2.1 million, but we did that over the course of like over a year. So we took in like 30,000 from like our initial angel investor who is really the kind of investor you want, where it was like, we got on the phone with him for like five or 10 minutes and he was like, I trust you let's do this. Here's 30 K like, call me if something goes wrong. And like with that initial 30 K we were able to like place that first order and get some of the first components that we needed. We shipped a beta to that like 200 or so users that I had had from the work I had been doing previously. And, and we started shipping and over. And so over the course of several months, instead of kind of putting the business on hold to fundraise, we just started running with what we had and like taking checks in along the way to fill out the remainder of the round. And so that was a painful process. I would not recommend it. Um, I, <laughs> like prolonged rolling close capital raise. And so, so you know, we suddenly went from this very bootstrapped kind of thing to to having some capital to actually be able to invest. And ultimately, that seed round was you know primarily angels. We had maybe two small early stage VCs in who were not like we're not particularly interested in like having you know a ton of involvement in the day-to-day -day. so for the most part it was really you know a group of of individuals who felt really strongly about what we were doing and then from there last year we raised a series a which we launched the subscription business or you know relaunched with the sort of brand that we have today in february of 2016 then six months later 
we got a meeting with the buyer at Target. So like literally an advisor that we had who had his company's products in Target took one of our subscription boxes, gave it to his buyer in a totally other category and said, will you just pass this to the femcare buyer? And he did. And the femcare buyer, you know, basically called us up and was like, I love what you're doing. This is amazing. I'm, I'm getting ready to, for the first time for Target, launch a like naturals section in the femcare aisle. They've never had an organic or natural femcare brand before, but they felt like that was something that their guest was going to value. And so she was in the process of getting ready to launch that. We had 13 weeks from that meeting to hit shelves, which is like absurd. We didn't have packaging. Like we, it was, it was, we, we were in that meeting and she was like, you know, I want you to be part of this. Can you deliver by, you know, September 1st? And we were like, yeah, no problem. And of course, like <laughs> left that meeting and like, you know, had to immediately start running to, to hit those deadlines. And I think we did it in like 12 weeks, five days or something. But like, that was like a, another kind of big moment for us where it was like, okay, like the direct to, to consumer subscription is, is going well, but like, we still feel like this is a really traditional category. We want to be in traditional retail. Like who's, who should that retailer be? Obviously, Target kind of is, in terms of like mass retail, the one that felt most aligned with our brand. And it was just like, really, I think the ideal partner that we could have found at that at that early stage. So we were not treated like royalty the way that you see some, you know, D2C brands go into Target and it's like they roll out the red carpet. Like we were part of just a test in their eyes. They had no idea if it was going to take. And thankfully it did. And they're really investing into that now. But you know, it was definitely like we could have failed horribly and had to walk away with our heads hung. But thankfully, everybody's assumptions were right. Women really did want organic and natural products at Target. Congratulations. Thanks. Yeah, I am. I'm curious about your seed round and your Series A funders. Mm-hmm. Do you feel like they were primarily investing because of purpose and mission or primarily because of the returns that you could potentially show, or was it a combination of both? It was definitely a combination. For some people, it was all mission. It was like all heart, all like people who frankly, like probably are not like typical investors. They are people who have personal wealth that they like to deploy towards things that they care about. And this fit that description. And then for people on the other side of the spectrum, it was like very much a, there was a clear white space opportunity and the business model was, you know, was something that they understood and could get behind and the unit economics made sense and they were willing to add us to their portfolio of other startups and companies. And we got a lot of no's. There were a lot of people who didn't agree with our model for one reason or another, didn't think there was a huge opportunity in organic femcare, or didn't think that an omni-channel model made any sense, or why do you have a subscription? That doesn't make any sense. You should only be at retail. And other people were like, what are you doing going to retail? Can't you see you know, the dollar shades and the birch boxes just taking off and adding a ton of value for their investors and blah, 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 blah. But we felt really strongly about like wanting to be where our customer was, not where like it was trendy to be. So yeah, we definitely had a total range. And in our series A, the round was led by a more institutional VC firm, you know, thankfully one that, you know, is solely focused on companies 
uh, led by women and that are making products that are oriented towards women. So we felt really aligned there and continue to feel so lucky that they ended up being our, our lead there and have been amazing partners to us. Fantastic. So I'm, I'm, I literally just saw Cora at Target like last month. Um, you've closed your Series A. Things are growing. I'm curious for you, what do you think has been one of the main reasons for your success, not only in terms of growing your company, but growing your company in a relatively taboo market? People don't like to talk about periods. Uh, people get yeah. uncomfortable about tampons. It's like a whole situation. So how have you been yeah. able to grow a company in a taboo area. Totally. So when I started working on the idea five years ago or so, it was still very taboo and there was very little awareness. And in the time that I was working on it, certain things started to happen in the culture at large. So, you know, things like Kieran Gandhi running the London Marathon free bleeding and Rupi Carr posting the photograph of herself on Instagram with a period stain having that taken down and then reposting it and having Instagram take it down again and it kind of creating this stir among women of like, hey, this is a totally natural experience for us and sorry if it makes you uncomfortable, but there's nothing dirty or shameful or disgusting about this. Like our culture allows for so many other things that are far more offensive and inappropriate. This is not one of those things. And so there started to be more conversation in the culture around those things. And of course, you know, then candidate Trump made the comment about Megyn Kelly and, you know, inferring that she was on her period during one of the debates when she was pressing him with really hard questions. And that sort of stirred additional outrage. And so suddenly you went from this being super taboo, which is, I think, part of the reason why women were not super conscious of what the products they were using were made of. There were a lot of assumptions being made, I think, that they were healthy and that why wouldn't they be? So it sort of started to open things up. And so what I always cared about from the brand perspective and from the messaging perspective was that I wanted to restore reverence for the female body. You know, we have been so shamed and degraded, not just in this way, but in, in so many other ways too. And yet like not, not just is this like not, disgusting or shameful, but like, this is powerful. This experience is what is tied to our ability to create life. And, you know, whether we choose to do that or not, it's, it's an extremely sort of deep experience. When you think about it, we have this like experience of death within our body and immediately, you know, the hormone that triggers menstruation is the same one that triggers ovulation. And so like, I was so fascinated by like that deeper, I think, spiritual aspect of feminine power. And so like, I tried to start infusing that into, into the brand in the way that I could. And the mission was really front and center, which I think really captured women's hearts in a way that made them feel extra good about, you know, making this choice they could do better for themselves and in the process help someone in need. And I think that's like something that, you know, we all have an inherent desire to do, even though it's hard to figure out the ways to do it sometimes. And so I feel like truly like being really authentic about it. Like this is not like a marketing ploy. This is something that I want our brand to, to help instill in the culture and help to be a catalyst in this larger movement that's happening that I think is, you know, changing women's minds about this experience. And like the one example that I give is like, 
we have customers, we have women, you know, writing to us or putting in their reviews, like, I used to hate my period, or I used to really like load this experience. And you've changed my perspective on it. And, you know, I look forward to getting my period each month. It's just like, what women in history ever said that? Um, <laughs> and, and I think to myself, like, if the next generation of women could grow up feeling that way about their periods, instead of like, oh, isn't it a drag? Isn't it so, so gross? And oh my gosh, I can't wait till this is over. Like, if the next generation of women could grow up feeling like this was an experience that made them powerful, what would that do to our body image? What would that do to our sense of self and you know the way that we perceive ourselves more generally? Like instead of hating ourselves in this way, we could actually, or our bodies, we could actually you know derive a, a sense of power from it. That's beautiful. Oh, all right. So I love this founding story. And I also want to hear about some of the lessons that you've learned uh, in doing all of this work. And so I'm going to start with, I'm curious, what is the most painful lesson that you've learned? <laughs> oh, gosh. Uh, um, I think the most painful lesson has been trusting myself as a leader or an authority. I think that as things started to grow, as the company started to grow, as the team started to grow, I really, it, it, it was really hard for me to like trust the vision that I had or trust that I would make the right decision. And as a result, I often ended up feeling like decisions were being made without my input or without consideration for like some very minute aspect of this experience that I wanted to make sure was like perfect for women. And I think like really standing in my own power, like I think being young, frankly, being a woman, like, uh, like in the, in this very traditional world that of business that is still trying to find its, you know, its gender equality, the the feeling of kind of that my vision for this to be like a company that came from a place of heart and a place of trying to put a real flag in the ground in terms of its ethics and its morals and the way we did things not because they were you know, better for the business, but because they're better for the world or better for women or, you know, just the right thing to do. And I think like finding my voice has been one of the greatest challenges and sort of the most painful challenges because when I would stay silent, when I wouldn't speak up because I was afraid I would be called like, oh, you're, you know, you're soft or that's a super like mamby pamby hippie dippy way of thinking about this. Like, you know, that, that part of it was like really, really hard. I went through a lot of just like dark nights of the soul where I felt like the original vision or what I, what I felt like I set out to do isn't being honored, but it wasn't because anybody was trying to like do it a different way. It was just like, I wasn't, I was the holder of that of that perspective and I wasn't expressing myself. And yet I sit at the head of this company, like I have every right to demand that it be done this way. And yet I had a lot of fear about that. And I think, you know, being willing to stand up and say, this is how I want this done was 
painful and yet, you know, coming out the other side of it has been really amazing. And I think we're a better company for it. During any of those dark nights of the soul or any other time in the company, have you ever thought about giving up or walking away? And if so, how did you get through it? Hmm. Yeah, I think I've, I've never considered walking away. I've certainly thought about what what my life might be like if I had a, you know, more traditional job with a big salary and a, you know, like a fancy title that I could, you know, take anywhere. It, it, it I think what I, what I have felt is like, what is it going to take for me to be really happy to do this for the rest of my life? Like, I don't know if I'll do it for the rest of my life yet, but if I had to, or if I had the opportunity, like, how would I want it to be? And like, what would I want that experience to look like and feel like on a daily basis? And I struggle today to think of something that I could be more passionate about than I am about this. Like, I actually often joke that like, this is the last job I'll ever do. And like, whether it works or it doesn't, like, you know, this is, this is sort of it for me. (laughs) Um, And so like, that's kind of my motivation for, for making it work. But I think that, no, I mean, I, I, I really pinch myself almost every day that, that I get to do this and I get to do it with the people that I get to do it with. Like, you know, the, the team that has formed around this idea is extraordinary. And every single one is an extraordinary human being who is not only incredibly intelligent and great at their job, but, you know, has a wonderful heart and cares deeply about the larger mission and the movement and what we're here to really do. And, you know, it's, it's like, I, I struggle to believe I could find something like that anywhere else. I feel the same way about my team. Yes. Yes. <laughs> yes. Um, so I'm curious around just looking back where you are now, what are the top three pieces of advice that you would give to other business leaders? Oh my gosh. Well, I feel like this was part of that original interview mm-hmm. and part of like what was asked in that original in that original um, article for Conscious Company. And I have come back to those and actually feel like they still hold true, even after everything that, you know, has happened and all that we've been through and all of the the growth and the change. And I actually have that up here, up in front of me right now. So I would like to refer back to the summer 2015 issue three of Conscious Company Magazine, um, where number one was be human. So, you know, I think so much of what really disgusted me about the way that products had been marketed and sold to women in this category was that it was so contrived. It was so paternalistic it was it was in many ways condescending and at the worst it was like offensive and I just thought I am by no means a a perfect person but like I try to be a good person and I try to like be kind and generous and like thoughtful and self-aware and like what would it be like if there was a brand that was that way and not trying to like manipulate the way women felt about themselves and and therefore you're going to buy our product because you're scared of what might happen if you don't? What if, you know, I could really 
display some level of humanity through this brand. And so I think like that is the number one, you know, piece of advice is like be human, be who you are. Let that come through. People will connect with that far more than they will with some, you know, contrived and catchy marketing line. Like really show a level of humility or vulnerability and let that be like a strong connection point between you and your brand and, you know, the people that you're trying to speak to. Number two, stand for something. So I think that business has to become a force for good. Like we don't have the time or the luxury to allow anybody on this planet to become complacent or to be complacent or to only be part of the problem and not be part of the solution. And I just think for better or worse, business is one of the most powerful forces on the planet. And if it were used for good instead of simply for selfish aims, that many of our greatest world problems could be solved very quickly. And so I think it is imperative that every company have some some tie to a bigger solution that they're trying to solve. Like that is at the essence what a business is for. You're solving a problem. And so can you solve a problem for the person that you are offering your product or service to, but can you also solve a bigger problem? And I think that's, you know, like just, it gives purpose to you as well as a, as a business owner. It gives you something larger to, to work for. Because, you know, I think we all know whether we have direct experience or we've heard it, but, you know, like money only gives you so much happiness. <laughs> there is a ceiling on how much happiness money brings. And there, there is so much more gratification in the long term of being able to actually say, you know, I helped this person or I helped the planet. And then the third was ignore your fear. So I feel like there is some level of fear inherent in anything that is risky or that is asking you to go outside of your comfort zone or to put yourself in a potentially precarious position. But if you can actually allow that to be what it is, but to give more credence or all of the credence to the part of yourself that is excited or energized and turned on by an idea or a project or an opportunity like that is the that is the thing that propels you forward the fear is like always going to be there there will always be that nagging voice in your head that says this is a terrible idea and you are not good enough to to pull it off but like i think the ability to put that in its place and to acknowledge it and yet not ever follow it is the thing that allows you to get through those really dark moments where it would be easy to to pull the plug and walk away and and head back to the the straight and narrow path <laughs> like i could listen to these words of wisdom forever um so as our kind of wrap-up question here i am curious yeah. what is giving you hope in the world right now Oh, I think what's giving me hope is just the shifting consciousness that I'm seeing. And I really like I'm a I'm a pretty strong believer at this point, just given my experience of life, 
that everything is sort of happening as it should and that everything that's happening is ultimately for our greatest good. And so from that perspective, I think that the ways in which, you know, we're being shown the uglier parts of ourselves and our culture and our society, you know, that is that is really waking us up to where we feel like that is misaligned with who we truly are and the people that are really helping to bring more people into that space of consciousness, the people who are doing things large and small to cultivate acts of kindness and to make the voices of people who have been oppressed more easily heard. I think it's that greater belief that everything is happening for our greatest good. And then all of the evidence that I see that supports that. And I'll be honest with you, like I, I really try to focus more on those things than I do on the negative things. And it just, that's what gives me hope. Thank you. The World Changing Women's Podcast is brought to you by Conscious Company Media. If you like what you're hearing, we'd be so grateful if you could help us out by subscribing, rating, or leaving a review of this podcast. As a reminder, don't forget to follow us on Twitter at WCWPod. A huge thanks to Molly Hayward and the entire team over at Cora. Also, Nina Bernardin, our incredible podcast manager, and our podcast partners on this, StoryPop. Join us next week for an interview with another world-changing woman. And thank you, as always, for listening. 